Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, this morning, we're in 2 Peter chapter 2. This is, an, again, an assigned text for me. I don't think Scott will ever just say preach to me because he knows what could happen. Uh, so we're in 2 Peter chapter 2. This is the, one of the most interesting passages in all of the New Testament. It is uh, very powerful. It's very descriptive. Uh, it contains a lot of information, and it's, it's a real challenge to us. So I'd ask that you stand as we read 2 Peter chapter 2. I'll read and you follow along. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge of the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm, 
For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Please be seated. Well, I wasn't kidding, was I? Uh, This passage has two grand themes or subjects. First, there's a warning about false teachers. And second, we see the sovereignty of God in judging false teachers and preserving his children. So first, the warning about false teachers. But false prophets also arose among the people. This is a continuation from the end of chapter 1. Now, if you remember chapter 1, Peter's emphasis was in verse 10 and 11 when he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, you will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then Peter tells his readers, about the nature of divine truth. It's not a cleverly disguised myth or devised myth, and that no prophecy or truth of Scripture was ever produced by men. No, the truth came from God. And he writes, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we have divine truth revealed to us by God. We have a certain word, a clear direction about topics We could never know without God's revelation. And as I've prayed, where there is no vision or a word from God, the people perish. But we have that word. We're in a perfect position to know who God is and what he desires. But having said all that, Peter starts this section out with, there were false prophets. In the presence of truth... There will always be false teaching. There has never, ever been a time in recorded history where truth did not coexist with error. The truth comes first, but the false teaching comes right on its heels. Let's look at the ancient biblical history. In the garden, God had given instruction to Adam and Eve, and what did the serpent say? Yea, hath God said, so God gave a command, and there was untruth. Abel's offering versus Cain's offering. God told Abraham and Sarah that he would bring forth from them a mighty nation. But then the lie, well, maybe he is, but maybe he's going to do that through my maid. 
the giving of the Ten Commandments, God himself wrote on the tablets. And Moses came down from the mountain, and what did he find? Worship of a golden calf. The message of the prophets versus the false prophets in all the Old Testament. Elijah's message versus the message of the prophets of Baal. The constant temptation we see in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel to follow after other gods, to adopt pagan cultures of the people of Canaan, to incorporate, to incorporate in the true worship of God, pagan worship. Then we look at New Testament history. Jesus combating the false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, not just for their hypocrisy, but for their distortions of the truth. Paul warned in Acts chapter 20 when speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he said this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And that prophecy came true. The New Testament epistles, almost all of them, contain refutations of doctrinal error. The Corinthians, the temptation to substitute human personality for the truth. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, rather than the truth. Poor teaching regarding spiritual gifts. The failure to deal with an incestuous relationship, believing it was not serious. Galatians, we see legalism. That is, salvation is by grace through faith, but also if you keep the law. Colossians, an exhortation against meaning ritual and legalism. Let no one judge you in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day. If the church could stick with that, half of the era that we've seen in the last hundred years would be washed away. Hebrews, the preeminence of Christ and his completion of the work of salvation. James, a rebuke of partiality. First, second, and third John, a rebuke of the Gnostic heresies, which said that uh, the created world was bad and God, in fact, did not create it and Christ did not come in the flesh. In Jude, we read these words, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We will never find a time in human history where God gave instruction that false teaching did not immediately rise up. And so, Peter tells us there will be false teachers among you, and there have been. Ancient church history. Heresies have been around since the church was founded. We mentioned Gnosticism. There's Docetism, the teaching that Jesus only appeared as human but in reality was fully divine and only gave the illusion that he had a body. Suffering on the cross was a mere appearance. Arianism, denying the divinity of Christ, the Son of God, was created by the Father and was not co-eternal with the Father. Then later in church history, the teaching that made the Reformation necessary, 
Salvation is by grace through faith alone. Works are not part of salvation. That the sole source of inerrant spiritual truth and authority was the Bible, not church leaders. That all people, each person, can go directly to God and there does not need to be a clerical mediator. And is part of and following the Enlightenment. This was particularly devastating and has had a long-lasting impact and exists today. Following the Enlightenment and part of it, the rationalism that crept in to biblical study and, and the idea that scientific discoveries have shown that the Bible is not the Word of God, but rather the Bible is a collection of writings about people who were trying to understand what God was doing in their age. The Bible has some truth in it, but the Bible is not true in all respects. That heresy exists to this day and has captured a great number of churches and institutions in our country. In more modern times, the early mid-1800s, we had a plethora of movements in this country. Some were not Christian, but Christian adjacent. Others became Christian sects. And they usually were based on one common thread. That is, God spoke directly to some leader or person and gave them divine revelation that needed to be added or included to the Bible. And we live today with those movements, those heresies that have distorted the gospel and have destroyed lives. The 20th century has seen many such errant movements. Salvation is not enough. That's one. The idea that when you become a Christian, that's not enough to truly experience the full grace of God. You need another experience where you get the Holy Spirit. Instead of understanding they're believing that, we should know that what happens is he does, we don't get more of him, he gets more of us. Confusing our life here on earth with our life in heaven. God is always going to heal you. You're going to have a perfect body on earth. God is going to make you wealthy on earth if you just appropriate enough faith. As one writer I've read for years says, we, sh we shouldn't immanentize the eschaton, which means try to take heaven and bring it to our current situation. Legalism. The 20th century in the United States, in the Christian world, was plagued with legalism. That is, restricting people's conduct, dictating their lifestyles, requiring that they do a certain amount of performance of Christian service to be pleasing to God. Things like weight loss regimens and Bible studies that are not meant to just help you in life, but you do them so you can reach God. Open theism, the idea that God is not all-knowing. He hasn't seen what's going to happen. He's just learning it now like we are and reacting to it. Economic theories, attempts to incorporate Marxist economics into the Christian faith, or if not Marxist economics outright, very legalistic teaching about money and possessions, resulting in guilt manipulation. I can remember as a young Christian hearing a person I thought was a super pastor and minister preach a sermon or write a book about, quote, whether a Christian can drive a BMW. 
And then a book came out, it's been probably 50 or 6 years ago, called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. It was so faulty, a revised version had to be published. And I always appreciated the retort to that book, Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. The confusion between justice, which is the fair and impartial application of the law to everyone, with charity, which is Christians giving out of their abundance to help others. The confusion is people are owed justice, therefore you owe them your money. One quote is, Christians, as a matter of justice, owe, they owe to the poor as much money as you possibly can give as opposed to charity. God has given an abundance, and as God moves on your heart, you give. The emergent church movement. As the culture changes, a new church should emerge in response. The seeker-sensitive church. The seeker-sensitive church movement is the idea that churches should be specifically designed for the non-Christian or the unaffiliated so as to win them to Christ, to entertain them, to bring them in, and then they'll, you can give them the bad news later. Identity politics. More recently, the introduction of race and gender identity politics into the church. To have a legitimate church, they say, you should have an ethnic representation of all the different ethnicities in proportion to the population of your town so that your church looks like church in, like the congregation in heaven. What did I say a minute ago about immunitizing the eschaton? Instead of just faithfully ministering to all people and leaving it to the Lord who he adds to your church. Treating people differently on the basis of ethnicity instead of treating one, everyone equally. In the church, there is no Jew, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, male or female. Human sexuality, the movement to be more open to having a modern perspective on sexuality results in statements like this. God only whispers about sexual sins because of the few times those sins are mentioned in the Bible. But God really shouts and really cares about sins like pride and greed because they are mentioned a lot more in the Bible. A retort to that that I read was, well, no, God found those things so sinful and so objectionable, he only needed to say them once. If it weren't for the passage in 1 Corinthians about the man having a relationship with his stepmother, there would be no commandment in the New Testament against incest. Does that mean, therefore, that God whispers about sexual sin? Homosexuality does not send you to hell. You know how I know that? Because heterosexuality doesn't send you to heaven. Heresies about the Bible. Recent ones. The Old Testament was not written for Christians. We have the New Testament. We need to decouple the Old Testament from how we are to live as Christians. The Old Testament contains law and the moral code for humanity. So when we talk about sin and we speak to unbelievers about their need for Jesus. It's because of their sin that they're separated. Well, where do we find how sin is defined? In the Old Testament, the moral code that God has given us. Our mission has also been corrupted by some. Some have said that the the gospel is about holistic restoration. And that restoration is not a work of those who've been saved by the gospel, but it is the gospel. And they've added 
I'm not kidding you. They've added, not only is there a great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, there is, according to them, the great requirement. The great requirement is found in Micah 6, chapter 8, and it's to do justice, which is meant the redistribution of wealth. Now, all of these movements, not all, but some of them, have probably been trying to speak to a very real concern. But in so doing, they've left the reservation and they've moved away from the text of Scripture. So the first thing we want to say is not all false teachers are the same. The ones we read about today are not all the same as the ones I've just listed. We have a really bad group described in this text. Now, why is Peter so focused about this issue? And the answer to that is found in the verses that tell us about the nature of false teachers and the effect they have on others. False teachers, they're deceptive. They're sensual. They engage in defiling passions. Now, again, this is a list of qualities of these false teachers about which Peter is writing. We do not know historically to whom he's referring. And, and to apply this text, we don't have to walk around and try to find a false teacher that meets all of these requirements, okay? These are a list of requirements, a list of a description of these false teachers. And so hopefully uh, we, can, we can learn some markers and we can see some things in, in people when we listen to them. They're deceptive. They're sensual. They engage in defiling passions. They're false. They despise authority. They're bold and willful. They follow the things of the flesh, not the spirit. They're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. They revel in the daytime. That means they're so bold in their sin, they don't hide it at night. They do it in the day. They're blots and blemishes. What a put down. That's unbelievable writing. Their eyes are full of adultery. They're insatiable for sin. They're greedy. Their hearts are trained in greed. And he describes them as waterless springs and mist driven by storm. They're like, they, they have a spring, you have a spring here, but there's no water in it. There's nothing for humanity to help humanity that's brought by these guys. Or they're mist, you see this mist coming by, driven by a stream, well, we're going to get rain for the crops, but all it is is a mist. It's just shallow. It's nothing. I heard one time a pastor, Ed Young, who was the pastor at Second Baptist Houston for several decades, and he said his seminary experience was just terrible. And when he got out, his faith in the Bible had been so destroyed, he went and tried to pastor a church. And he said, I had no faith in the Bible. And he said, I was trying to feed people, but it was like I was feeding them sand. It was like I was just throwing sand to them, ideas and things I would come up with. And I realized God was so gracious that I eventually returned to the truth of Scripture, and I began to feed people what they actually needed. That's very similar to what he says when he says they're like waterless springs and mists. When you move away from the gospel and the truth of the Bible, you don't have anything left to give people. Now, the effect of these false teachings, he says they're destructive. They destroy people. People are exploited. They, they entice unsteady souls. So vivid. So vivid, weak people that are exploited for their money. The truth is blasphemed. They promise freedom. Buy my book. 
by my book on tape, by my CD, by my CD on tape. They enslave people. Many people will follow their sensuality. Matthew Henry says, Men drink in iniquity like water, and they are pleased to live in error. We are weak, and people come along with false doctrine, and they lead people astray. Lives can be ruined by this. I can remember as a young Christian, some of my friends whose lives, they, they got into a false movement and false teaching, and I'd have to say I was tempted to many times because it's so out there in our culture. You know, the greatest danger in Israel, the greatest danger to the nation of Israel were not the armies of Babylon. They were not the armies of the Assyrians. You know what the greatest danger to Israel was? The false prophets. The greatest danger in the life of the church is false teaching. We are God's ambassadors. We speak for God. We carry his message. If the church is damaged because of the presence and influence of false teaching, we cannot be faithful witnesses in this world. And we cannot be salt and light to the culture. Every time the church departs from what is true or refuses to speak what is true and allows error to persist, we fail to be salt and light. And we're good for nothing. So the greatest danger in our lives the lives of our church and the lives of our children. It's not poverty. It's not social rejection. It's not illness. It's not enemies. It's false teaching. The second part of this chapter addresses God's sovereignty in the judgment of false teaching and false teachers and in the protection and perseverance of the saints. So what does God have in store for these false teachers? Condemnation. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Destruction, their destruction is not asleep. Peter writes, he keeps the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. They will be destroyed as a wage of their wrongdoing. God will judge false teachers. Put it down. The fact of judgment that God judges, contrary to what we think, is a great comfort. It may seem strange, but think of of how we and others, even unbelievers, yearn for true justice in this world. Nothing raises anger, hurt, frustration in the human heart like the denial of justice. The righteous, perfect, fair judgment of evil, we may not want it for ourselves, or our friends, but we do yearn for it for people who are harmed. Humanity yearns for true judgment. And when we see it denied, it causes distress. Think about it. Movies, books, televisions, by the hundreds or the thousands, often have as their central plot point the eventual judgment brought to people who commit evil. Have you ever seen a movie and there's a bad guy in the movie and he doesn't get it at the end, it's a little frustrating. I have to tell you, it's a little frustrating. We want to see the bad guy get it in the end. So judgment, in many respects, is a great comfort to humanity. Now, to prove his point that God will be a faithful judge to these false teachers, Peter gives three examples 
of how God has executed judgment in the past. Number one, God judged the angels who rebelled in heaven. Peter says God judged heavenly beings for their rebellion against authority, so God will also judge earthly beings. Second, God destroyed humanity in the flood. In a vast and mighty act of judgment, God destroyed humanity who were described as evil and immoral. So, God will judge evil and immoral people who distort the message of the truth. Third, Peter writes about God destroying two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, turning them into ashes. God was willing to burn the inhabitants of two entire cities for their lawlessness, rebellion, and evil. God is willing to judge false teachers who bring evil into the church. But there's also another source of comfort in these verses. In addition to God's judgment, we see that God will protect his children. When he mentions the flood, Peter says, he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. So Noah was going about it. He was being faithful. He was heralding exactly what God told him to say. And he preserved Noah along with seven others. When he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter says he rescued righteous Lot. In God's sovereignty, he always protects his children, those who belong to him. We may not understand why God permits false teachers or any evil for that matter to exist, but we can always know that in his sovereignty, his sovereignty, God is going to judge false teachers and he will always protect us. He will always protect us and get us home. Now, a quick word about the final verses in this chapter. Uh, Peter writes, after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome for the last state has become worse than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What is this a reference to? People who apparently became Christians and then adopted false beliefs and then began teaching them. When we look and weigh the entire witness of the New Testament, we learn that God births us. God is in control of our salvation. God preserves us. You do not have to preserve yourself. Isn't that good news? God preserves us. So what he's talking about here are people who, on by all outward appearance, join the church, believe certain things, and then to begin to reject those and teach things that are false. They are false teachers, and by outward appearance, appeared to be believers and no longer were. So outwardly, we have apostasy. But the true child of God can never be apostate. God always holds and protects us. We can be misled and we can be severely harmed by false teaching. But we are his sheep and he does not lose any of his sheep. Now, our challenge, our calling. If you notice in this incredibly descriptive and strong passage, 
There is no instruction. There's no therefore. There's no do this, do that. So we're not specifically, overtly commanded to do anything. But there is a challenge and a calling in these verses. It is implied. What is implied? We must do all that we can to oppose false teaching when it arises. This chapter is not a call to complacency. That, hey, they're going to be false teachers. God is going to judge them, and he's going to protect you. Therefore, go and don't worry about it. That is not the reason this warning is given. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a warning. The implication is that the church should be on our guard and that we should work to eliminate false teaching in our midst. God is sovereign, yes, but humans have responsibilities. We must oppose false teaching. We must protect our flock, our congregation. And we need to protect the larger church, the church worldwide, the church in the United States, by raising our voices to opposing false teaching. We must constantly be on our guard against the false teaching and not allow it to go unrebutted. A couple of points about this. I've found that in my nearly 50 years in the faith, that opposing false teaching is one of the last things in the world that Christians want to do. I have served on boards of various Christian organizations for 40 years. And I have never been on a board that was not, at some level, hesitant to address false teaching. Why? Two reasons. False teaching is always personified. It is always connected to a person. It never drops out of the sky. It's never in the abstract. False teachers are people. Often, they're people that we know. People with whom we have prayed and labored. This makes it very, very difficult. And as a result, unhealthy cultures can develop in any organization where there's a conspiracy of silence. We love these people. We're not going to say anything about it. Sure, we see what's going on, but we're going to choose to remain silent because they're our friends. Well, who is our greatest friend? Our fairest Lord Jesus. Who is our Lord? Jesus is our Lord. And we cannot betray our greatest friend to help others. Second, there may be a cost to addressing false teaching. False teaching often gains popularity. If I were more handsome and taller and had some money, I might be on television, right? And, and I could have some kind of a TV show and I could spread false teaching and I could get really popular and I might have my own TV network. And, then, and guess what? People who would speak against me when I was a nobody might not be so willing to speak against me. So it becomes popular. And there can be a risk associated with opposing ideas and narratives. 
A lot can be at stake. Jobs, relationships. I can't tell you how many times I've heard in the past when I was dealing with an issue like this on a board or somewhere, and someone would say, well, so-and-so is a good man. And it's because he was in my wedding 40 years ago, and I just can't speak against what he's saying. Social acceptance. You know, when the society gets into something and it becomes hot and it's on all the morning shows and nobody wants to be an outlier, right? Nobody wants to be the goofball that's saying, well, I'm not into that. You look like a goofball and people don't want to be goofballs. Denominational relationships, speaking gigs, book deals, book publishers, speak out against this guy. He's got a contract with this publisher. Guess what? You don't get that contract with that publisher. So what we often do is we talk about controversies that happened 500 years ago. Sure, you can, I can be really brave about the Reformation, but I'm not Martin Luther, right? A lot of people, I heard that somebody say this, I can't remember the first person I heard say this, but I thought it was really poignant. A lot of people, especially in the church, love to kick the corpse of Goliath, but not many of them are willing to throw the stone. We can be very brave and very good at fighting yesterday's battles. But you know, this struggle is very similar to our Christian faith, isn't it? When we become Christians, for those of us especially that became Christians uh, as older teenagers and, and then older, we're taking a risk, right? You take a risk. And if you tell people, hey, I've become a Christian, uh, you, you risk some, some blowback to that. Jesus told us we're going to have risk and we're going to have blowback. What does he said? They're going to hate you. And the reason they hate you is because they hate me. So you can just get ready for that. And we experience that at different levels in all of our different contexts. But the experience is still the, still the same. The question is still the same. Are we willing to address false teaching when it costs us something? It's, again, it's easy to kick the corpse of Goliath, but are you willing to throw the stone? And last, we often hesitate to address false teaching because we're aware of the tendency in our own lives we're not perfect, I'm not perfect, and we're aware of that tendency in our own lives to act unwisely or sinfully in this area. And that is not an insignificant consideration. We need wisdom in this area to discern when and how to address false teaching. Not all false teaching is the same. Not all false teaching deserves the same response. Some errors are minor, some are significant. Some disagreement is properly relegated to the area of legitimate theological disagreement. Take, for example, eschatology. You might be premillennial, you might be postmillennial, you might be uh, amillennial, or you might be panmillennial, which means it's all going to pan out. You might, be, you might be any of those things. Uh, and, and we don't need to tear the house down over that. Take, for example, baptism. Now, this is interesting. This is an interesting example. Baptism. I have wonderful friends 
who don't agree with me on baptism. I personally believe it's very clear in the New Testament that when a believer committed his life to Christ, he was baptized by immersion as an outward sign of what happened to him inwardly. He was not baptized as an infant, as part of an introduction into the church, kind of like a junior membership. I don't believe that. Uh, and w- but we can have disagreements of that. Some of the greatest Christians I know believe that. But on the other hand, some disagreements may seem very minor, but given a particular context, may have significant implications and may make them more important than we first realize. So for example, baptism. I'm saying that today, but what if it's 1600 and I got baptized? I could be put to death. Baptist preachers were flogged in Virginia when this country was being formed. So you see what's happened. Baptism back then probably would have been a cutting edge issue that we needed to dive in on and get after. Today, it's not so much because times have changed. It doesn't mean it's not significant, but it does mean there's a difference in the debate. And I am more than willing to say that's a legitimate theological disagreement. And I don't want to go to war with you over that. And I I hope you don't want to go to war with me over it. We need what's been called theological triage. Like, you know, people are injured and they go to the emergency room. Somebody's got their head bashed in. Somebody's got an arm missing. And somebody else has bronchitis. And the doctor has to make a decision about where to put these people and how to treat them. That's what we have to do with this topic. We have to use some wisdom Uh, and also we can act sinfully and and let me just say that we need to recognize that while being zealous for theological truth is a virtue and if you take away anything from this sermon you think I don't think it's a virtue you've been sleeping and I hope you haven't been sleeping but it's not the only virtue in the Christian life right none of us is ever going to be perfect We need to possess and apply all of the Christian virtues proportionately and consistently. A great preacher I used to listen to was Adrian Rogers, and he said one time, sometimes convictional people can be like porcupines. They've got lots of points, but they're hard to get close to. So we should should be balanced in our approach. We should be faithful but realize it is one virtue among many and all need to be held. But in realizing this, we should never allow this to be an excuse for passivity and failing to address error. And interestingly, Adrian Rogers was known as a stalwart when it came to biblical truth and addressing theological error. So he could talk about you know, people having points and getting hard to close, but when you talked about the truth of the Bible, he was going to raise his voice and go after it. So in summary, what is God calling us to? He is calling us to one simple thing at Grace Community Church. He is calling us to faithfulness. We need to be faithful to God. We need to believe what he's told us. We need to faithfully disciple those in our care. And we need to speak the truth both in the church and outside the church. And we can rejoice in God's sovereignty, that if we do that, God is going to take care of all the false teachers and he's going to protect us and we can do all of this for his glory. So God bless you. If you'll pray with me and we'll have someone come and take an offering and 
Uh, we'll have a song here and then the closing. Pray with me if you will. Heavenly Father, take these verses, apply them to our hearts and lives. May we have a sweet spirit among ourselves. May we truly understand what it is you're trying to say to us and may you give us grace to apply it in a way that, that honors you and gives you glory and, and keeps uh, our fellowship wholesome, faithful to what you've told us to do. May we have a loving fellowship. Lord, the last thing we want to do is address theological error and, and lose love for one another. That's not what you're calling us to, but you're also not calling us to put our heads in the sand. Please help us to be faithful. Please take these verses and use them in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.